0: This is the Journal of American History podcast for April 2013. Our podcast today focuses on a very important report on the state of history in the National Park Service imperiled promise, and we're joined by a wonderful group of panel participants for this podcast presentation Katie Bliss is a National Park Service Training Manager for Interpretation and Education at the Mather Training Center in Harpers Ferry, West Virginia. Seth Brueggemann directs Temple University's public history program, and he is the author of Here George Washington Was Born, Memory, Material Culture, and the Public History of a National Monument. Todd Moy is director of the University of North Texas's Oral History Program, and his most recent book is Freedom Flyers, The Tuskegee Airmen of World War II. Todd was director of the National Park Service's Tuskegee Airmen's Oral History Project. Anthropologist Kathy Stanton teaches at Tufts University and continues as a consultant to the National Park Service's Northeast Region Ethnography Program. Her book, The Lowell Experiment, Public History in a Post-Industrial City, won the 2007, 2007 National Council on Public History Book Award. David Thalen is Distinguished Professor Emeritus at Indiana University and former editor of the Journal of American History. He is one of the authors of Imperiled Promise. Julia Washburn is Associate Director for Interpretation, Education, and Volunteers for the National Park Service. Historian Ann Mitchell Wisnett is Deputy Secretary of the Faculty at the University of North Carolina, Chapel Hill, and one of the authors of Imperiled Promise. Ann and Dave, let me start with a question for you just about the title of this. Talk a little bit about the promise of history in the National Park Service and why it's imperiled.
1: Thank you, Ed, and thank you everyone for being here. I think when we began this project, everyone on the the team, which was a team of four scholars appointed by the Organization of American Historians to do this joint um, study with the National Park Service, Chief Historian's Office, when we were first appointed, I think everyone realized that uh, history is one of the key missions of the National Park Service. No one can look at um, the work that the Park Service does and, and miss that, or at least that's what we thought. Um, we were struck by the fact that, that about two-thirds of National Park Service uh, sites, of the nearly 400 sites in the park system, were designated for something related to history or culture. Um, and though people think of the parks as being these big natural spaces, you know, the Grand Canyon and this kind of thing, we uh, recognize, and as do many people, that the um, history mission is is equally important and that in some ways the, the Park Service could be and is the, the nation's outdoor history classroom. Um, so the promise is all of these sites all over the country where key you know, building structures, places where uh, aspects of American history unfolded—the um, unparalleled set of, of of these spaces that the Park Service has and has been adding to over the years—that have brought in more and more voices of American history. The the imperilment, from our standpoint, um, that word captured what we found after spending about three and a half years looking at history practice in the Park Service. And and we looked both at at how history is done, how it's understood, who is doing history. um, And uh, and we found, based on a large survey that we sent to about 1,500 National Park Service employees who work in and around history in some way, we found that the infrastructure, really the system to support high-quality history historical work from research to resources management to interpretation and education, the infrastructure was really not in place um, to uh, at a sufficient level um, that would be required given all of these fantastic historical resources and these places that the National Park Service holds and, and where we meet the public. Uh, so the imperilment is the sense that if the Park Service doesn't really take a serious look at how it embraces its historical educational mission. It, it, it really does not reach the potential that it has for being a site where Americans can engage with their history in ways that help them think about their role in, um, you know, as American citizens and and how history informs their lives. So that's kind of the nub of it right there. There aren't enough historians. There aren't enough uh, linkages between historians, both in the National Park Service and outside. And the whole project of public education and interpretation that the park service has, and that's why I'm so thrilled that Julia and Katie are on the call this morning. Um, so those were some of the key findings that we that we had, and I'll turn it to Dave to to add something.
0: Thank you, Anne. Uh,
2: well, I would uh, emphasize some of the findings that we that we did come up with, and I suppose the most uh, useful one may be something we heard, Anne didn't emphasize enough that we listened to, we sent out questionnaires or we sent out a a survey to 1,500 people who work in the Park Service. So this is not scholars just looking at things from outside. This is actually uh, what we're hearing from the people who work in the Park Service. And in many ways, I think this is a listening report as much as anything else. And what we heard, or at least the loudest thing we heard, is how the Park Service is. consists of many silos which don't interact with each other and so that a problem like interpreting history in the park service well there's a department of interpretation and then there's a one for history in effect and we raised a lot of questions about how how is it possible that the interpretation could be separate from the subject that is being interpreted and we made some suggestions about how uh, how um, they might be brought closer together. And let me quickly add that nobody knows this more than people in the Park Service themselves and one feature of this report is that it gives examples of good, of a lot of really good practices that are going on in the Park Service even as we speak, which makes the problem of system even greater. How, how come there's really good interpretation at one and less good at others and how do they relate to each other and Um, People in the Park Service know this, but maybe we were able to point to a few um, specific areas.
1: May I add here to that, to echo what Dave has said, we asked the survey recipients one question, and we said, in two or three sentences, please describe the state of history in the National Park Service now. And this quote that we got, this this response from one of the uh, people that wrote in said, history in the NPS is, quote, sporadic, interrupted superbly excellent in some instances and vacant in others. And this was sort of the uneven landscape that we found across the whole system.
0: Thank you both. Julia, as you listen to that uh, sentence and think about uh, the report, I know you've been a a real supporter of of this report. Uh, When you first read the report, uh, tell visitors a little about your reaction and then uh, how the report is being received in as you see it in in the Park Service uh, and then we'll, we'll turn to Katie because I know you've had some interesting experiences uh, in talking about the report at, at Mather.
3: Oh thanks Ed. Well um, first of all um, thanks to Ann and Dave for the hard work and all the other folks who, who worked on this report. I have to say um, when I first read the report my first response was I'm not surprised You know, I think uh, as has been mentioned earlier, um, those of us within the Park Service are painfully aware sometimes of of the limitations of the organization, and also I was grateful because uh, it basically provided a a beautiful scholarly sort of substance um, to to really help us think about uh, where we need to go and to make the it makes the scholarly case for. Um, where we were trying to go, where we are trying to go in the Park Service. So it helps us sell internally what we've already been trying to to work toward. I would like to say that uh, my position that I'm in currently, the Associate for Interpretation, Education, and Volunteers, is really a new position. Um, we've never had representation at the highest levels of the Park Service before. Um, we've always been interpretation has always been buried several levels down. And this director, John Jarvis. Uh, elevated it to the the level of the National Leadership Council, which has been a real boon because it has enabled us to have a voice at the table and be able to interact with our colleagues in both cultural and natural resources at the same level. So Stephanie Toothman, who is the Associate Director for Cultural Resources Stewardship and Science, Stephanie and I work together on a daily basis now, and our offices are right across from each other. That never was, we were never able to do that before. Um, So we're starting at at the highest levels to try to break down the silos that are mentioned in the report, and we feel that if we can't break the silos down at the leadership level, we can't expect anyone else in the service to break down those silos. But we are seeing it happen at multiple levels now, and I'm pleased to say that there's a real desire and need to collaborate. We realize now, especially in when times are tough economically, that we really need each other even more, and we can't get things done unless we collaborate and work together on them. So I'm, I'm pleased to say that that has started. And I have developed an expanded senior management team for interpretation and education. And on it are representatives from the cultural resources division and the natural resources division, along with facilities and several other divisions. And we've really tried to work together to create a common strategy or common um, a common way of, of doing business together and coming out with a, uh, an interdisciplinary strategic plan for interpretation will be released very soon, which reflects, I think, a lot of the concepts put forward in um, Imperiled Promise.
0: Thank you, Julia. And uh, the report calls for a, a whole number of things that require... Uh, more more resources, financial resources. And we all know that the Park Service is being starved in, in so many ways. Uh, but there are also a number of suggestions that do not necessarily require more financial resources. Um, are, are you finding that regional directors, and perhaps you even have anecdotal evidence of this, that that superintendents are both aware of the report and are thinking seriously of engaging uh, some of, of these things? What what do you hear so far from from the sort of on the ground reality of this, both at the regional director and the superintendent level?
3: Um, well, definitely, there are re- regional directors are aware of the report and and have been thinking about it. To I don't know to what degree. Individual superintendents have been embracing the report, but it is something that we are working on in terms of superintendent's roundtable and so forth, having them dialogue around it. I would say that I think there are certain things that are happening that are forcing the collaboration across silos within parks and in regions as well, like, for example, the commemoration of the 150th anniversary of the Civil War and uh, And the coming commemorations of very important events in the American civil rights movement so we 're looking at interpreting civil war to civil rights in its full context, and doing that is requiring interpreters and um, historians to work together on a on a local, a regional, and a national basis and there are other common Big issues that we 're working together on now, um, climate change being one of them, and the effects of climate change on cultural resources, are stories that need to need to be told and need to to get out and we 're starting to see um, more interaction um, cross disciplinary because of these, so I think that we 're seeing that there are certain things going on in our greater society that are beginning to force that collaboration.
0: Thank you. And Katie, I know that the report has uh, been a topic of conversation in uh, some of your courses at the NPS Mather Training Center. Can you tell us a little bit about how the report is, is being discussed? And I think you mentioned to me in an email that you you had some student reaction from Park Service folks about several of uh, uh, the suggestions, so maybe you could talk a little about that.
4: Sure. Um, Well, recently we had a classroom course called Interpreting Critical Resource Issues Using Civic Engagement and Facilitated Dialogue Techniques. And and we've held this course uh, once here at Mather Training Center uh, in West Virginia, but this most recent course was in uh, Philadelphia at the Northeast Regional Office uh, for the National Park Service. And as part of the course, I assigned a prerequisite of having them read uh, the last two findings within the report: uh, fixed and fearful, and finding on civic engagement. And the students had to read and react to those, and then um, and then post a reaction to other students. And it was very interesting. And um, I think that we saw a number of trends emerge that really kind of validated uh, what what we were seeing in. Um, the Imperial Promise Report. And, and this is a report that has a lot of application and uh, implications for the National Park Service. And it is interesting to see how this is being disseminated and evaluated and used throughout the Park Service. I think that it's very uh, important for regional directors and for the superintendents to be uh, taking a look at this, but also for our field staff. And so I found it very interesting to push it down to some of the, the field staff and interpretation. Uh, the class was a combination of mostly interpreters uh, throughout the Northeast region, but we also had Folks from the National Historic Landmarks Program and the National Heritage Areas Program, as well as River Trails and Conservation Areas, so we had an interesting mix of folks that were uh, interpreters and uh, and historians and and planners.
0: Thank you, Katie. As you think back on the reactions, uh, is is there a way to to categorize them?
4: Sure. I think that um, that some of the trends we're talking about. Uh, one one thing that captured me in the in the report was talking about history as a process and knowledge as a process, and this is a challenge to relinquish authority in our interpretive services. And so, this is a an area of anxiety for our interpretive. Uh, Ranks, and I think that what they're looking for are um, a number of things. Uh, It's management support for uh, looking at history as a as a process, to uh, not only diving deeper into historical knowledge, but also the co-creation with the visitor. So they need permission to fail and and to relinquish that authority that's been a place of comfort. The interpreters feel like they need to be trained in new ways of engaging audiences. Um, They, like the reports, focus on uh, the successes that already exist and want to focus more on that um, to find and celebrate those successes uh, and to be realistic about expectations for change.
0: Hmm, Thank you. So Kathy and Todd and Seth, you've been listening to all this with great interest, no doubt, and you each uh, have been engaged with the Park Service in wonderfully creative ways. Uh, Your thoughts both about the conversation and your own Reaction as you first read *Imperiled Promise*, Kathy. Why don't you start us off?
5: Sure, and I have a, a nice. I think follow on to what Katie said because I'm an ethnographer of public history sites and national parks and I, one of the things that has struck me for years is uh, the need for a little bit more of a layer of reflexivity and something that anthropologists have really struggled through in the, the last few decades to, you know, to try to sort of see our own role in the picture a little bit more clearly and our, and particularly as it relates to representational power and authority. And I think uh, one of the things that I'm particularly impressed by this report is that it uh, it foregrounds that that may, need to really um, put ourselves into the picture, both as individual interpreters and also as the Park Service writ large, and then to think about how that shapes relationships to visitors and the stories that get told and kind of all all of that follows on from there. So it's really interesting to hear, Katie, that people are getting that, but also willing to articulate anxieties about it. And I, I think until we... Articulate those anxieties that we're not even close to coming to groups with, you know, what it really means to move more serious process-oriented uh, critical history out into the into the public realm. So this is this to me is one of the heartening things about the report, just in terms of framing it and uh, providing a little bit more language that people can use to begin to to start talking about it.
0: Kathy, as you as you read the report and listen to the conversation, uh, you must have been going back to your own uh, superb work on Lowell, your close reading of the different tours that the Park Service did uh, at Lowell and what you called the history-making uh, process there. How how did Lowell come back to you as, as you read the report and listened to the conversation?
5: I think the thing I was um, harking back to most was um, I had a a real critique of how I thought that the fantastic critical history that was being done kind of in the back rooms in Lowell was um, it, it, as it sort of filtered out into the into the uh, that, that public interface the the actual interpreter interface on the ground was really um, i keep wanting to use the word sequester and i can't use that word anymore but the, uh, it was, it was sort of it was filtered and and the, the the insights and the questions and the you know that sense more of history as a process that I knew that the um, that the good historians in the in the back rooms were coming up with was really um, not finding its way all the way to the to the front lines and that that I, I was analyzing it as a result of a number of things: uh, what visitors were looking for, what I called rituals of reconnection, that were these sort of more, um, more emotional and familial and, and kind of experiential connections that visitors were looking to make, that were facilitated by the frontline rangers, um, and then the, the local politics of how the how people, how a lot of people in the city wanted to see that park set up, and and one of the questions that I never really answered for myself, and I and I don't think imperiled promise answers it that it uh, sets it out there really clearly is how to how to maintain that um, sort of a dialogue across that whole range from historians and and this is not to imply that historians are producing the one authoritative kind of knowledge and it kind of trickles down but more how do how do we Ensure um, a dialogue, or a pipeline, or or some kind of a conduit, so that those voices are getting are in closer dialogue with what's happening um, on the front lines. And this, you know, there's there's all kinds of. Um, Status and, and, to some extent, sort of class anxieties, um, which I was seeing as um, endemic within the, the economy that we're all a part of. That, in, in terms of more elite knowledge producers versus less elite, less secure um, people who are a little bit more, um, you know, kind of out pushed pushed out there in in ways that are um, that just feel very insecure. So I think again, um, just. Seeing that and framing it for ourselves is an incredibly valuable contribution to the field.
0: Hmm. Thank you. Thank you, Kathy. Seth, you're in a wonderfully interesting position as uh, director of Temple's public history program and uh, a, a longtime uh, f- friend participant with the National Park Service. Your thoughts about all this?
6: You know, I, I should add, I'm also a historian of uh, memory, so I kind of add it uh, from that perspective, too. Um, I mean, really, I guess I, you know, I, I, I have three big responses. Um, the, the first is that as somebody who, you know, has been a friend to the Park Service and periodically does uh, consulting work with it, uh, I am just so absolutely delighted that a bunch of smart folks have made clear this history interpretation problem. Um, and it's, um, I mean, in some ways, it, that's a really my glee is selfish and that I don't have to write that paragraph anymore. <laughs> right in and reports that I envision for the Park Service or or for my students. I mean I find you know really that first twenty five uh, thirty pages of the report uh, wherein that, that 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 problem of of reconciling history uh, with interpretation is just wonderfully written and accessible and useful and I think is is the starting point for uh, for, for many conversations. So very excited about that. As a as somebody who runs a uh, graduate program in in public history, you know findings two through eight are really a, a kind of recipe for somebody like me who wants to you know not only get students into uh, park service careers and get young historians thinking about uh, engagement through through the park service, but also helping the agency think about opportunities for uh, engagement with universities. And so, you know, from a professional standpoint, I, I'm just delighted and. You know, I'm somebody who believes that, you know, no graduate student in history should not spend time in, in a national park unit. You know, I, I think, you know, if I had my way in souths ideal world, uh every graduate program in history would have a required stint for its uh, students in the in, in MPS unit. So um I you know, I the more ammunition I can get to make that argument, the happier I am. And then finally, as somebody who writes about memory, um the last uh, the last part of this report, finding nine uh, finding 9 through through 12, really, I guess you could say, really not only makes a, a powerful case for uh, why the agency needs to engage reflexivity in the broadest sense and think about its own institutional history and, and its own memory of itself, as well as how Americans uh, go about remembering the past. It also demonstrates that some of, of what those of us who have been writing about memory uh, in the last decade or so, that's been successful, <laughs> right? That um, you know, we, we find a place here where there's a real practical application for doing memory studies, uh, rather than memory studies simply remaining in the in the realm of the theoretical, which uh, tends to be a problem in in graduate seminars. But here we have a wonderful uh, place uh, from which to bridge the the you know, theory and practice in terms of thinking about memory. So. Um, you know, I, I, I'm in love with this report. My only worry about it, uh, which is something that gets addressed within the report, is that it becomes one of those you know, anonymous bits of gray literature that sits on a dusty shelf somewhere and uh, doesn't get implemented. But uh, the fact that we're having this conversation and the fact that so many folks are running uh, roundtables at conferences about the report uh, really uh, encourages me.
0: Yeah, as as at least for me, Julia's and Katie's comments on, on this call. Seth, do you have uh, your students read parts or all of the report in classes yet? And if so, what's their reaction as they read?
6: Yeah, uh, well, so this will be the first semester that I, I will have them engage the report. Uh, and in fact, I'm teaching a history of the National Park Service this semester. So we will be – we haven't used it yet. We're going to use it in the last third of the semester, and and we'll see where we get. um, But it's – I I will share a story from that class. It's an interesting one in that it's an undergraduate course that serves in part our ranger program uh, that prepares uh, students for careers in the Park Service. And part of my goal uh, in this course has been to situate the agency's history within current events. And, and, uh, Kathy, I'm sorry, but I'm going to use the word – I raised the issue of the sequester the other day, and you know, I was shocked to find that that maybe, I don't know, in a class of 30, uh, less than five people had any idea what the, the sequester was, <laughs> let alone how it might influence the um, uh, the National Park Service. And so, uh, yeah, yeah, that, that's my way of saying that uh, as as excited as I am about the report and its ability to shed light on problems within the agency. I also understand that the the, the task of educating people about the NPS and what it does and how it works uh, is is really a massive one.
0: Mm, Thank you, Seth. Um, And waiting patiently, and last but certainly not least, Todd, you've had uh, a foot in in both worlds uh, uh, with the Park Service at Tuskegee and now uh, teaching public history. Uh, what, What are your thoughts and reactions, both when you read the report and to our conversation?
7: Well, I can I can echo a lot of what already been said. Um, it is very encouraging to have people of uh, Ann and David and Gary Nash, uh, of 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 that caliber, paying attention to this and and bringing other people's attention to it. Um, you know, from academia, from the outside. I think one of the most important things that the report does that no one has mentioned yet is that it gives a blueprint on sort of two tracks for how the park service can encourage people to replicate best practices that are already happening within the park service by what do they call them lights along the path shining spotlights on the great work that's being done sort of on the grassroots and, and bubbling up from there i think it's important that other people from inside the park service see that and uh, and understand how they can replicate those best practices and then make their own contributions. It also gives a blueprint for what people from outside the Park Service can do to build support for the history program. And that may be where the rubber really hits the road. And it's certainly what we in academia have some control over. Uh, You know, we don't have too much control over Park Service policies that are developed, but we can help build support for the Park Service and advocate for larger budgets and what not from the outside so i think it's important that the that the report offers some some really tangible ways that we can do that through the history advisory council and some other suggestions that it makes um but it's you know it's it's terribly encouraging to hear i have to say this to hear katie and julia respond to the report the way they have because my experience as a park service historian who was working on the development of a new park with interpreters and architects and everyone else who is involved with that project from so many different viewpoints. Uh it it you felt like you got lucky if the interpreters and the historians were on the same page and were in the same room having a conversation because the the, the way the silos are built within that bureaucracy are very real. And to hear that there are efforts from within the Park Service to to break those down and to systematize those conversations is is very heartening. So there there are lots of things to be excited about in the report. It sets right that the danger now is that it just sits on a shelf somewhere. But I think that's where conversations like this come in, and it's where the History Advisory Council comes in, and it's it's up to the rest of us now who care about the Park Service from the outside to take it from here.
0: Thanks, Todd. Katie, do you? It certainly sounds from Julia's comments and yours that this is not a report that's just gathering dust on the shelf. What's your sense of it as a kind of live conversation piece within the Park Service?
4: Well, I think one critical way that it's it's living is that it the findings within the report, uh, I believe, are helping to frame conversation about new desired outcomes for the role of the National Park Service within society. So the idea that this can be a, a place that builds capacity for uh, civic engagement, for ci- uh, civic participation, and um, the capacity for discernment of what a, a desirable political process is. This, uh, this is a real contribution to society that we really haven't defined, that we really haven't clearly articulated. And I think that this starts to frame the conversation about what those new outcomes could be for our, our organization.
0: Okay, thank you. And Anna, and Dave, let me... Uh come back to you because i imagine some uh listeners are wondering what we're meaning by the this very serious and interesting division between history and interpretation in the park service uh can you just let visitors know a little bit about what to all of us is an artificial division and the report traces the history of this uh, uh beautifully
1: uh well yes um this is one of the most puzzling things, I think, speaking for as a historian who has worked on several projects with the National Park Service, but from outside the agency. Uh, we had a moment when we were speaking together with other outside agency historians where someone piped up and said, but don't all historians do interpretation? Well, I mean, that's the way historians think about the work they do. We're reading the past, and we are creating interpretations, narratives, meanings um, about what it all added up to. But when you get into the Park Service, you do realize, as, as Julia mentioned, and um, Katie and uh, and several of us here, Todd, said that the, the silos are very real. The um, history work in the Park Service kind of after the 1960s due to historic preservation legislation and other developments in and outside the agency sort of got moved over into the silo that's called cultural resources, managing the actual physical remains of the past that are sitting on the National Park Service landscape. And that is a involves a lot of research, understanding those resources, um, what their state is, and it involves particular aspects of uh, legally mandated preservation work all very important but meanwhile um, after say the 40s 50s 60s um, the side of the agency that worked with the public to talk about those resources to help them develop a connection to them to help folks understand them grew up under the silo that increasingly professionalized under the term, uh, capital I, as I say, interpretation. Um, And uh, just over time, through various uh, happenings and events, these two became separate activities, and to the point where by the time we came into things, most of us on this call, maybe in the 90s and, and 2000s, you would find these bizarre situations whereby historians... Would do reports, would do intensive primary source research on the on the resources within the parks, and would write these up. And then uh, people working in interpretation, who would seem to have no notice of them or not make use of them in any ways. And this repeated itself over and over again. We noticed it at various levels, and our survey respondents commented upon it, especially at larger parks, and talked about it over the history of their own experiences within the Park Service. It also developed that there became a sense that historians couldn't deal with the public, and that interpreters needed different skills. Uh, And so that separation reinforced the the growing bureaucratic separation over time. Um, And while I think there certainly are different skills um, that are involved when you're doing primary source research or preservation, and when you are talking to public audiences, uh, the extreme separation seems to us very inefficient, doesn't make use of the work that the Park Service is doing on one side, and has sort of kept interpretation out of the conversation about the process of history uh, and how scholarship moves forward and develops and asks new questions over time. So it's it's not proving functional, and it's making um, interpretive efforts perhaps have less impact than they might in speaking to current questions and really uh, being relevant to the American public.
0: Hmm. Thank you, Ann. And I know, uh, Dave, you've had specific interests in uh, audience research and visitor studies, uh, huge areas, and also dialogue training. Um, And as you listen to Katie talk about – continued interesting civic engagement and how this report may may support that can you talk a little bit about the challenge of these areas and how you think the park service at least so far out of the report is or is not engaging this really well
2: yeah thanks ed um yeah i I did have a follow-up question because what 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 has really happened i think the broader development over the past 10 or 20 years is that we're bringing the audiences and partnerships and so on into account. That history is no longer something separate from the way, the, the skills it can teach, the participation, indeed the initiative of um, visitors, where we care what people bring to the, their experience with the park, what they carry away from it, can the open-endedness of what happened at a, at a park, a battle, or a, the segregation struggle or whatever it is, can the original open-endedness help visitors to get a sense of uh, questioning their own assumptions, exploring the reflexivity we've been talking about? And I have a question, and I guess it's for Katie or maybe Julia. What strikes me is that there are lots and lots and lots of uh, organizations that are out there doing audience research and doing civic engagement and promoting dialogue. To take dialogue, for example, we have Amer- Animating democracies, whole year-long, years and years of work with civic dialogue. We have Open Spaces Institute, Public Conversation Project, Everyday Democracy, Center for Nonviolent Conversation, so on, so on, so on. Lots of organizations. But one of the concerns we had in the report was the Park Service Um, or key people, sometimes we're not aware of the range of possibilities out there, and I wonder how you choose people to do the audience research or to help train Katie uh, interpreters. uh, Why, for example, choose the Coalition of Sites of Conscience instead of some of the others who do dialogue?
4: Well, the the relationship with the International Coalition of Sites of Conscience is not a new one that actually goes back to some of the early civic engagement work that was done in the northeast region by um, the regional director maria rust so that's um that's a relationship that i believe took original work that was done by the national park service and uh and applied it uh, in a way that uh we were unable to do in our current climate. Uh, and so it feels like it's coming full circle to some, to some degree with some of the work that was initiated by the, by the Park Service. And as far as other organizations or who do we choose to do audience research, there's some intentionality by the National Park Service to tap uh, organizations to look at particular aspects of knowledge of the audience, but it's actually a very much crowdsourced process. Um, there's lots of different groups who are doing their own research r- regarding uh, how we open up the, the process of knowledge, uh, knowledge acquisition, knowledge creation, knowledge sharing. Uh, Within our within our parks and our audiences, and it is a struggle to to understand the the breadth and depth of that research. I'm constantly discovering. New groups doing uh, new projects and trying to um, trying to map that, trying to help coordinate uh, organizations that aren't quite ready to share their research findings, um, but feel like uh, involvement with the National Park Service is desirable at different levels. Uh, so it's a it's definitely a challenge to try and 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 connect those organizations so that there's uh, there's um, synergy rather than duplication.
0: Thank you, Katie. So I'm sure uh, listeners are are sort of tired of hearing my voice asking uh, all the questions. So let me ask you to just talk with one another, questions you have listening to this really uh, interesting discussion.
1: So this is a a question, I guess, for Katie. Um, we, Dave and I were at a conference recently together where we were talking about imperiled promise and heard a report out of Clemson and Virginia Tech on um, best practices and in interpretation. And so my question kind of has to do with how how the Park Service plans on taking on board recommendations that may be very different from different reports, or maybe there's a way to integrate them that I'm not aware of. And here's the question. So that report, from what I heard, and I have not read it, um, but the presenters described having asked visitors at, at national park sites about their satisfaction with interpretive programs they attended uh, with live ranger interpreters. And the conclusion appeared to be that the things that correlated with the greatest level of satisfaction defined as some kind of happiness with the program right after the program ended, was um, uh, uh, the confidence of the interpreter and the interpreter's apparent knowledge. And this, um, as was described as, was was put at um, the other end of the spectrum. Something that wasn't seen as being effective was someone being an encyclopedia of facts. And so we were to wondering, um, how does one reconcile that with a critique that we raised in Imperiled Promise about what appeared to us over um, many decades now to be perhaps an overemphasis um, among uh, National Park Service interpreters on interpretive style um, to the exclusion of, or sort of the denigration of, at a certain level, um, historians as people who just know a lot of facts but can't connect uh, and we are proposing I think a, a greater integration of you know those skills and some kind of um, way of, in which a deep level of knowledge about a resource, about the primary document, documentary record of a, an event or a history, can facilitate the, the confidence, the ability, as Dave was suggesting, to open up those moments in the past where there was some kind of open question that people faced, uh, help visitors to talk about those moments and be very flexible and dynamic with a particular topic or or particular history in a way that's more effective and less sort of fixed and fearful. And so I guess I would just be interested to know when you all read these different recommendations coming from different places, you know, and you're thinking about training interpreters, many of whom we also heard at another conference that I was at recently are, of course, seasonals. How do you take all of this and, and figure out where to go? Uh, that's an excellent
4: question. I I am very familiar with the report that you're referencing from Clemson. It's uh, um, Best, Best Practices in Live Interpretive Programs in the National Park Service. And although I don't have that in front of me, I feel like I can speak to I speak to the findings that you're describing and it was a bit of a surprise that the highest the highest correlation for good outcomes for a visitor was the confidence that is displayed by the interpreter um, but uh, confidence shouldn't be confused with um, with the, Yes, the, the description of the walking encyclopedia. So confidence is not uh, a, a spewing of, of facts and this desire to transmit one's knowledge into the, the mind of the visitor. This is something that I think the report also found was that Based on the, the desired outcome expressed by the interpreter, the uh, the outcomes for the for the visitors varied. So, if the outcome was to increase the visitor's knowledge of the subject, it had uh, an in, inverse uh, correlation with good outcomes for the visitor, um, as opposed to. Provocation or uh, desire for for the visitor to want to want to know more or learn more. So the the idea that uh, an interpreter needs that foundation. They they need to have a confidence within their subject matter expert expertise for them to. to riff off of that, to have variations that are co-created with the visitor. So uh, this is something that is, is a nuance within, within both of these reports and, and many others that, that we're receiving is that there's, uh, there's a need for um, a deep understanding of a subject matter area, yet not a reliance on that expertise to overwhelm the visitor. Mm-hmm. Um, that expertise should be an underlying component of an ability to to relinquish that authority and be able to explore what a resource means with a visitor.
6: Can I chime I in? This is, this is Seth. And I, I just want to raise the point that this is, this is exactly the kind of thing that makes me really excited as somebody who runs a public history program, because this is precisely what we've been doing for, for, for a while now, is training people, historians, to have excellent you know, content expertise, but also have a real flair for narrative and a variety of communication strategies and a uh, sensitivity to to, uh, issues of shared authority. So what I love about the report, and that's reflected in these comments, is that there is this sort of, you know, burgeoning uh, group of folks who who have these skills and are looking for work, and the question becomes, how do we create the the connections that are necessary between the academy uh, and the agency to, to put them into those positions?
2: Well, can I turn this just a little bit? Um, the focus of, of the reports that the Clemson folks made was on satisfaction of visitors, but that's not what visitor studies are are doing as a field, as I understand it. They're trying—Kathy's an ethnographer; she would know more about this than I do. But they're trying to understand the experiences that people have. So I could feel satisfied going to a park, or a park, or for that matter, a movie, or anything. Because I'm going with my grandson, and I've built a nice afternoon uh, that's deepened my relationship with my grandson, and field, and the field of visitor studies, as I understand it, is really much broader than satisfaction. It's really tries to get inside what people bring to and carry away, and um, I was surprised um, by the Clemson study asking people if it had changed their behavior. I don't know how they could know that when the survey is uh, given while we are still at the park. But anyway, my larger question is, there there is this whole field of visitor studies, and it didn't seem to be informing the study uh, of the Clemson people. They were just asking about satisfaction and, and these narrow qualities of interpreters or knowledge. seems to me the starting place is neither the interpreter nor the or the historian, but actually the visitor.
5: This is Kathy, and I I agree that there is more... In-depth uh, research going on about those more you know, long, longer-term, deeper kinds of motivations and takeaways that people um, have from historic sites. But even there, I think I think this. Um, the question is, what do managers do with that? In In the same way that the question is, what do the managers do with the kind of deeper, more complex knowledge that historians create? How do you How do you move that more toward a um, kind of a management priority or an interpretive plan? Um, and I, I think even with in Visitor Studies, from my perspective as, uh, as an ethnographer and anthropologist, that um, often those are very much more geared toward um, you know, the, the specific needs of sites or those shorter term. You know, how, how do we even study that? How do you just study something years after the fact that takes a, a really different kind of um, set of methods? And, and I think that's a discussion, in my perspective, that's only just beginning to happen.
7: The title of the report, of course, is Imperiled Promise, and that refers to the, the promise... Uh, that's there in the National Park Service's resources to be a major national institution uh, responsible for historical education of of visitors either to parks or to websites or whatever the case may be. And I think everyone on the call agrees that the the Park Service has these amazing resources that it does not use to their full potential. So I'd like to throw the question out there to the authors of the report and, and to everyone else. How do we get the National Park Service to take that mission of historical
0: education more seriously? Good. Thanks, Todd. Ann?
1: Well, so, I yeah, I would love to talk about this. We were very worried as the writers of the report um, who have a historical consciousness of the many reports that have been done on about around the Park Service over decades now. We inventoried some of those in uh, a section of our report, a kind of a historiography of reports. And so we're very self-conscious of ourselves as one in a cascading series of reports, and now we've got others that are coming out as we discussed earlier. and. We thought that there had to be some kind of institutional mechanism, partly to get this to keep the conversation going, to keep people paying attention to this larger issue. And uh, two things we recommended there one was the History Leadership Council to be formed inside the park service by the most committed historians interpreters uh resource managers together um, who are concerned with history and could take kind of a pan agency planning role in paying attention to history in the agency an advisory role to different groups on various in various departments that are working on things and then we also proposed a history advisory board that would be external uh, advisory group of historians, museum professionals, um, other public history practitioners, people who really have their finger on the pulse of these uh, currents and trends outside the agency that are pertinent to also pay attention at the highest level. And we've had a, a very interesting report recently to the team uh, and to the George Wright Society in a recent conference on progress on this front. There's been a good bit of progress. In- on constituting the internal group. But the external group, I think, is also critically important, and especially in getting the conversation about history to be held at the highest levels. It's been suggested to us recently that this group could be constituted as a subcommittee of the National Park System Advisory Board. And there's a science subcommittee of that advisory board, and they're talking about their recent big report on uh, resource management called the Leopold, Revisiting Leopold. And we'd like to see history taken up at that level um, as well. And so, uh, you know, there's some conversation about that right now, but actually how to make that happen is still a bit of a
5: question mark in our
0: minds. Other responses? Thank you, Ann.
5: I have one that is a little more in the i guess in the philosophical realm than and and thinking rightly about the, the, you know, the pragmatic questions about how to make these linkages and and, and keep things flowing. I'm thinking a little bit more about framing it, um, maybe not quite so much as how do we get the Park Service to do X, Y, or Z, and I and I think that people within the Park Service rightly feel that, you know, they're, they're barraged with suggestions and, and edicts of all kinds, and, and that maybe one helpful thing that we could do as people within the Academy is to frame it that it really, is part of a larger a shared problem and a shared set of conversations that of course go on in the academy in museums in all kinds of you know the whole kind of knowledge producing world which is facing a lot of the same pressures and the same struggle for resources and also the questions about how do we you know how can we be responsive civically how can we share authority rather than just reproducing it which still tends to happen way too much in the academy how can we uh, become better teachers and on a, a sort of a more micro level how do we in our practices of teaching ourselves, how do we um, move these kinds of insights into practice and my sense is that public history programs and kind of the field of public history is a really good place and a way to do that so things like Seth's program and the you know that class on the history of the national park Service that those are those are venues where we can start to be a little more reflexive on all levels and rather than sort of putting this onto the National Park Service to say, here's this larger field and we're all trying to articulate the values of what we do and to be responsive to various publics and to, to be reflexive, all of those things. So I think seeing ourselves as um, as part of this effort rather than as kind of outside experts providing advice to the Park Service is maybe an important step, too.
0: Mm, thank you, Kathy. Any, any other responses to Todd's question?
5: I would just add to that, and,
6: and this is Seth, that you know, for those of us who are friends to the the Park Service and understand how it works, we can imagine, we can begin to imagine solutions to these issues and how to encourage conversation. But for those folks in the Academy who, who haven't worked with the Park Service yet are interested, it's harder maybe to, to uh, figure out uh, where the points of contact are. I'd love to see a, a toolkit, you know, <laughs> like a set of written instructions or something like that um, for folks uh, who – Are in the academy who want to be friends with the Park Service but don't know how to be. um, That helps them engage, and and it's you know I I can do that for my colleagues in some ways. But you know there there are great ironies. I live in Philadelphia, but most of my contact with the Park Service comes in other parts of the country. So even I struggle to figure out ways to to uh, engage the the people who are right in my backyard. So. Um, I, I guess my, uh, this is really more of a comment than a question, but that it's, uh, it's important to, to uh, remember for those of us who understand the agency how uh, difficult it is to understand for, for folks who are way outside of it. Uh,
2: we, make a, we make a suggestion that I think direct goes directly to this uh, observation, and that is not only does there need to be leadership at the top, but there need to be informal contacts at the bottom. Mm -hmm. and uh, we propose something like a sister city arrangement where somebody at a university or museum would become a kind of partner Mm -hmm. with somebody at a uh, park, and they might meet once uh, a month and uh, have a beer or coffee and talk about and, and in informal ways get to know each other and get to know each other's problems and sustain it over time. In other words... People who have the kind of, there are plenty of academics who are interested in parks and parks who are interested in academics. Uh, we just need a structure to do it. And um, I think Sister Cities provides a wonderful model for a kind of thing.
1: And, and I'd also like to add, um, in addition to things that are institutionalized and structural, we, and you've, all, you've discussed several Sister Cities as one, the OAH, National Park Service. Um, collaboration that produced our report is another uh, kind of already in place point of collaboration that could potentially be expanded. And we did recommend that that be investigated uh, and and maybe bring in other institutions such as the uh, National Council on Public History. But one other part of this that kind of brings all this together is just a greater fluidity and poros, porosity between the in the borders of the Park Service and maybe in the borders of Academe as well, um, so that the connections are growing all the time across various levels. And some of that happens in conferences uh, and when. Folks from the National Park Service uh, have a terrible time coming to conferences, such as they are doing presently under the sequestration. Um, but always have some trouble with, uh, even when we're not in a crisis like this, that hinders those relationships. But social media is providing other avenues for the building of those one-to-one relationships over time, that ultimately will help information flow back and forth in a in a more uh, easier in an easier way in a and a more frequent way. So I think building, you know, building all of those connections at various points is absolutely critical. And and one of the things that I think has been the best about having worked on this report over these past four years is I certainly feel, and I I think Dave would say the same, that um, our connections with lots of individuals all across the Park Service have increased dramatically. And I just hope those conversations, you know, keep going.
0: And I think that's a wonderful place for us to to stop a conversation that that could go on and hopefully will go on a very long time. Uh, But we we need to bring the podcast uh, to a close. And I hope that uh, listeners can see the, the range of questions that this report has has sparked. The title of the report is Imperiled Promise, the state of history in the National Park Service. It is a joint venture of the Organization of American Historians at the invitation of the National Park Service. If you would like to read the report yourself, you can go to the OEH website and it's found at oeh.org backslash programs backslash NPS. And Ann mentioned the uh, vibrant uh, association between the Park Service and OEH, and you can get a sense on the website about the range of activities that OAH is involved with. We'll also be talking a little more about this report in an upcoming podcast for our Civil War series on the OAH website when I do an interview with Gettysburg's Scott Hartwig, who will talk about the 150th at Gettysburg and also about the impact of this report Uh, on history interpretation at uh, one of the most important historic sites in the country. So thank you all. We've been talking today with Katie Bliss, National Park Service Training Manager for Interpretation and Education at the Mather Training Center in Harpers Ferry, West Virginia. Seth Brueggemann, who directs Temple University's Public History Program, and the author of Here, George Washington Was Born, memory, material, culture, and the public history of a national monument. Todd Moy, who is director of the University of North Texas's Oral History Program, whose most recent book is Freedom Flyers, the Tuskegee Airmen of World War II. Todd was director of NPS's Tuskegee Airmen's Oral History Project. Anthropologist Kathy Stanton, who teaches at Tufts University University, and continues as a consultant to the National Park Service's Northeast Region Ethnography Program. Her book, The Lowell Experiment, Public History in a Post-Industrial City, won the 2007 National Council on Public History Book Award. David Thalin is a distinguished professor emeritus at Indiana University and former editor of the Journal of American History. He is one of the authors of Imperiled Promise, Julie Washburn, Associate Director for Interpretation, Education, and Volunteers for the National Park Service, and historian Ann Mitchell Wisnett, who is Deputy Secretary of the Faculty at the University of North Carolina Chapel Hill and one of the authors of *Imperial Promise. And let me mention as well the other two authors of *Imperial Promise who could not be on the podcast, historians Marla Miller and Gary Nash. All of you, thank you so much for taking part in this really important conversation. Thank you. Thank you. you.
6: This podcast is produced by the Journal of American History, the leading scholarly publication in the Journal of Record in American History. Visit us on the web at www.journalofamericanhistory.org. Please support the journal by becoming a member of the Organization of American Historians. Subscribe online at www.oah.org and you'll receive a printed copy of the journal four times a year.
0: Thank you for listening to the Journal of American History podcast. Please join us in June 2013 for our next episode. If you have any questions or comments, please email us at jahcast at oah.org dot org.